0: Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity, there is none who does good, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who who understand, who seek after God, they have all fallen away, together they have become corrupt, there is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be God. Let's pray together. Lord, we... Uh, thank you for your word today. We ask, God, that you would uh, speak to us. Uh, you would be our teacher, Lord, that you would uh, challenge our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would call us and, uh, even closer to you this morning, Lord. No matter where we're at in life, God, I ask that you would um, speak to our, our minds and our hearts to change us uh, for our good and for your glory, we pray. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. We're in 1 Samuel, chapter 25 this morning. Today we have a story of a fool. We have a story of a man who makes a poor decision because of the fool. And then we have a story of a godly woman. Here's the big idea this morning. Uh, Many things can lead us to make bad decisions, but God calls his people to the prudent life. So, you see that in your notes? That's at the top there, the big idea. Let's read it all together. Now that you know the blank, let's read it all together. Ready? Many things can lead us to make bad decisions. But God calls his people to the prudent life. Prudent is a word that we don't use much anymore today. Prudent means this. It's acting with or showing care and concern for the future. Acting with, showing care and concern for the future. Many people are so into the day in and the day out grind of life that they don't give any thought to the future. Rather, they are prone to make poor decisions for the here and for the now. Let me give you some examples. First example is children. Children are prone not to be prudent. Children understand the here and the now, but uh, the, the, the future is not so accessible to them. You remember when you were a kid, a summer vacation seemed like a huge, long chunk of time. Uh, Christmas uh, seemed like it was a mile away at the beginning of December. Uh, You don't think much about the future. I remember going to the sandwich fair, one of the first times I ever went as a kid. Has anybody been to the sandwich fair? And so you went to the sandwich fair, maybe like I did as a kid, and I went there and I had a bunch of money I'd saved up. I had worked hard to go to the fair, and I got to the fair And I got to the place in the midway where all the games were, and here were all these wonderful human beings asking me to come play their game. (laughs) And they said, come play, and look at this huge, giant, stuffed animal that you can win if you just knock down these three bottles. And so I pay the money, and I knock down the three bottles, and they came out with a toy this big. Here you go. Well, what about the big one? Well, you got to win it 10 times in a row to get the big one. And so I went on the midway and I played and I played and I played and then the supper time came around and I had 50 cents left. I couldn't buy any food. I wasn't prudent, okay? I didn't think about the future. The holiday season is upon us and how many people will take out their credit card and buy a bunch of stuff that you don't really need and plunge yourselves deeper into consumer debt that will take the rest of the year to pay off, not being prudent. How about this example? Many people don't think about life after this life, about eternity. Eternity is not a topic that we like to consider. Take, for example, a funeral home director that I know. Uh, Since I was about 25 years old, I've conducted funerals as a pastor, and I've done, to my uh, estimate, about 200 funerals. And on one of these funerals, there was a far drive that I got to have with the funeral home director. It was on the east side of Joliet. And so um, after the service, I thought, you know, I, I, let's just talk to him about some spiritual things, see, see where he's at. I mean, he, I've done a bunch of funerals. I talk about the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity, so I wonder where he stands. And so I asked him, I said, what do you think about heaven and hell? And what do you think about God? And what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about it all? He said, like, oh, I'm not really sure about it. I said, well, what do you think about... When you die and and when you stand before God and eternity, what do you think about eternity? And he said to me, he said, "Um, I'll just deal with it when I get there. So prudence, to be prudent, is not in vogue to think about the future. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story of a man who's a very successful farmer, and he has uh, some good years, and and so he tears down his barns, he's got to build bigger barns to store all the stuff that he's got, and he, he builds these bigger barns, and he's got them all filled with all of his harvest, and he sits down and he says, now I can eat, drink, and be merry, and he's relaxing, and God interjects in the parable, Luke chapter 12, and he says, you fool tonight your very soul is required of you. Today we have a story of a fool. We have a story of a man that makes a bad decision because of a fool, and we have a story of a godly woman. And so let's tell the story uh, by looking at the three main characters in the story. 1 Samuel chapter 25, here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 25. The title of this message is Shattered Decisions. And first we start out the story with the fool. The fool's name is Nabal. Start at verse 3 of chapter 25. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have uh, been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David." When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from where I do not know? First, this is the, the fool, Nabal. He's a fool. Why? Well, because he's, he scoffs at a reasonable request. This is a reasonable request in the ancient Near East. David and his men, this is a time of fighting among tribes. And the Philistines were fighting against the Israelites. And there's skirmishes all the time. And David's with his 600 men. You remember, Saul's put David out. Saul has tried to kill David. We looked at the end of Saul and the end of his life last week. But at this point, he's still alive. Samuel has died. And now we see a picture of David over here. He's battling the Philistines. He's out in the wilderness. He's, he's out in the country. And it was a common thing to uh, have some of these warring men that are around. And, and they would take care of, or they would not take care of, some of the locals in the area. And so Nabal's a rich man. He's got many servants and many workers and Many hired hands, and and, and so David and his men have been around them this whole time, and they've taken good care of them. And so at the very uh, best, they were great neighbors, and they protected uh, Nabal and his workers. At the the very worst, they could be seen as kind of like mafia men. Um, They took care of them, but I'll take care of you now, but there might come a day where I'm going to ask for a favor from you. And so that's kind of what happened here. David sends his men to go to Nabal and say, Hey, we need some food. It's harvest time. You got a lot. We've treated you right. What do you got for us? Common thing, common practice. So what did Nabal do? Well, Nabal is selfish, and he refuses to acknowledge the rights of others. In the ancient Near East, this was a, a, a good thing to do. It was a, a right thing for David to ask for help and support because David and his men had helped and supported Nabal. So Nabal is selfish. Number one, he's selfish. This isn't in your notes, but you can add this. He's selfish, even though he was rich and he wanted, to keep, he wanted to keep all of the harvest to himself. He's got plenty. He's loaded. And you can hear the selfishness in his statement to David's men. Listen to all of the eyes and the my's and shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shares and give it to people I don't even know. He's selfish. He's also stubborn. He's also stubborn. The text says he's a Calebite. Okay? Remember Caleb? How many people went to Sunday school here ever? Ever? Twelve men went to spy on Canaan, ten were bad and... Nobody heard that song, okay. (laughs) Two were good, okay. The two that were good was uh, Caleb and Joshua, okay, in Numbers chapter 13. They come to the edge of the promised land. Moses is still alive He's with the nation of Israel. There's the land that they're going to inherit, that they're going to get to. They've been wandering the wilderness for 40 years, the nation of Israel, after they came out of Egypt. Now they're right on the border of the promised land. Twelve spies go into the land, see what they can find. What about the people that inhabit the land? Ten of the spies say, these guys are giants, they're beasts, they're timbadals. We can't conquer them, okay? And um, we better just get out of here. But there's two that stand up and say, we can do it. And Caleb's one of them. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel and go back to Joshua. Joshua chapter 14, cause this, is, this is cool. God's word's cool. This is good stuff. We had some small group leaders at our, over at our house and um, it was brought up, the story of Caleb. So uh, let's just look at it, okay? So remember, Caleb's the one, one of the ones, him and Joshua, that said, we can do it. This is the promised land. We can take the land. And now they're getting ready to settle the land. They've come into the land. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know What the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold... The Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country, of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Caleb, 85 years old, give me some of the land. Send me out into the land. Remember what happened? I'm just as strong as I was then. I'll drive out those people. He's a butt kicker, okay? Caleb, give me that land. And so... Joshua does. Now, Nabal, the fool, is a Calebite. He's from the people of Caleb. You've got to be pretty stubborn if you're 85 years old and you want to have the fight come to you, right? And so we see that in a bad way for Nabal. I'm not going to give you any of my stuff. you kidding me? So he's selfish, he's stubborn, and then he's stupid, okay? He's stupid. He rips on David. You heard the language there. Uh, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? I heard that many uh, servants have deserted their masters. Nabal, can you be any more stupid? Uh, David took down Goliath, you remember? (laughs) And now you're saying this stuff? Nabal's a fool. Then our story shifts to the hothead. The hothead is David. Look at verse 12 of 1 Samuel chapter 25. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now David responds rashly what did he say get your get your gear get your sword he's going down he responds rashly david experiences righteous indignation it was a good request that he had it was a common request that he had it was a brotherly thing to do a calebite david it's the nation of israel they're god's people so David experiences righteous indignation which degenerates into an unrighteous spirit of retaliation. It's sin, what he's aiming to do. The scriptures say that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five. It's also repeated in Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, God says, not you. So David experiences this righteous indignation and he's going to make it right himself. He's going to retaliate. He's the hothead. And because of the fool, he is being tempted into sin. The third person in our story is the godly. It's Abigail. Abigail. The story continues, verse 14, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both day and by night, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore... Know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five says of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I'll come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much of one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be his navel. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause, for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. There's lots of lords in there, but here's the big idea. The Lord God will honor you, my Lord David, as you spare this foolish man, Nabal. You don't go for blood. And when you just receive this gift that I brought to you, it's the godly woman, the godly Abigail. Abigail acts in a godly manner and averts the consequences of her husband's selfishness and David's anger. It's an amazing story. And how does the story end? What does David do? Verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Now you can read the rest of the story. Nabal finds out about all this stuff. He basically has a stroke, and ten days later he's dead. And then uh, David ends up marrying Abigail. Shattered decisions. We've been talking about the shattered life. And the shattered life and bad decisions and poor choices and not being prudent doesn't just happen to, to evil people. It doesn't just happen to the King Saul's of the world. It also happens to the godly. The man after God's own heart, David who because of a fool loses his temper and goes to kill a whole lot of people because of his anger. But he is stopped by Abigail, the godly. So now we move to application this morning. Application. First, let's start here. We are Nabal and David. We are Nabal and David. How, you say? Well, we sin because we want to. We sin because we want to. We're we're David. We want blood. We're Nabal. We are selfish. We choose to sin. Maybe you're a Christian. You're a believer. You're a disciple. And you think we really got the raw end of the deal with the doctrine of uh, original sin. I mean, I wasn't in the Garden of Eden. If I was in the Garden of Eden, we'd still be there in the Garden of Eden. I wouldn't have sinned. Me, me, Steve, if I was in the Garden of Eden, no, I would have sinned. But we wouldn't be talking about Adam and Eve. We'd talk about Steve and Eve. (laughs) Same thing. Doctrine of original sin stinks. We're born into sin, but we choose sin ourselves. We want our own way. Nabal wanted his own way. This is my stuff. If we're honest, we want our own way. We don't want God's way. We want God's way when it agrees with our way. And we want other people to want God's way when it agrees with our way. But when it starts to hit where we live, when it goes against what we want, then we have a problem with it. Let's just admit we're Nabal or David. David. We sin because we want to. If it feels good, do it. Sin is attractive to us. Let's just admit that right now. That sin is attractive. Okay? Sin is bad. It's ugly. Its consequences can be great and damaging. And yet, sin is attractive because there's something delicious about it. Whatever that sin is, what sin are you dealing with today? So we sin because we want to. And then we have many reasons to justify our sin. We have many reasons to justify our sin at Nabal. I mean, what could he have said? It's my work, it's my sheep, it's my harvest, it's my meat, it's my men. We can justify it. What are you talking about, David? This is my stuff. Go to somebody else. David can justify his sin. Nabal's a fool. I've protected him. I've taken care of him. I've been around him all these days, and and he's, he's prospered under my care and keeping, and he talks to me this way. I'll show him. We can justify our sin we justify it because people do stuff that are wrong that is wrong to us did you see what so and so posted on facebook they went to a bulls game with a group of my friends and i wasn't invited and all of the pictures are there to show it or i did go to the bulls game with them and they posted a picture that i was really looking ugly They did this to me. They treated me this way. They made me feel this way. They made me be bitter against them. My mom and my dad treated me wrongly. And I want to love them, but I can't. And they don't deserve my love. And I'm not going to give it to them. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You break the commandment of thou shalt not murder when you have anger in your heart toward your brother. When you call your fool, raka, fool. When you call your brother fool, you murder him. We have reasons to justify our sin. How about this one? Not just because somebody did something to me, but I justify my sin. It's okay. I know it's wrong, but it's okay, really, because it's not as bad as all the other people. It's not as bad as these other sins. I mean, I'm seeing some horrific things that people are doing all around me and you are telling me that God is concerned about my little petty sins? I mean, of course I'm angry, but I'll get over it. Of course I hate that person, but that's all right. There's always somebody worse, but as we said last week, God doesn't compare you to other people. God compares you to his own holiness and righteousness sin is literally missing the mark the mark is the center of the target is perfection it's god and his righteousness and his holiness and we sin and we miss that mark all the time but to make us feel better we just look at other people that are missing the mark more than us and then we're okay we're nabal and david We sin because we want to, we justify it, and then the end of our sin is death and dissatisfaction. For David, if he would have went through with the sin, it would have been death for Nabal and all of his men, right? But do you think he would have found satisfaction in that? Maybe temporarily, maybe his anger that he's he's so angry, he would have found some satisfaction measure of satisfaction for a a time but do you really think he would have felt a real satisfaction in his life that he had killed all these people no the end of sin is not satisfaction the end of sin is destruction the end of our sin is is a dissatisfaction and when you walk the road of sin which promises so much good deliciousness at the end of it you're dissatisfied and you're destroyed Billy Sunday used to say that uh, most Christians uh, treat sin as a as a um, as a pastry, as a powder puff, when we should treat sin as a cobra. The end of it is death and dissatisfaction. We are Nabal and David. Now here is the application: Jesus is the greater Abigail. Jesus is the greater Abigail. In seminary, we talk a lot about um, uh, Jesus is in the Old Testament passages. He's all throughout there. And so when you look at the story of David and Goliath, it's not um, we're David and Goliath are the big problems in life and we can overcome the problems in life. No, that's not the application. The application is that Jesus is the greater David. Jesus destroys Goliath. Jesus destroys sin. Jesus destroys death and the devil. In that story, if we're really going to be honest, we're one of the the nation of Israel. We're one of the soldiers cowering in fear, if we really want to be honest. Jesus is the one out in the battlefield. And Jesus here in this story is the greater Abigail. Abigail took upon herself the guilt of her husband. You see that in verse 24. Verse 24. She, fell, she falls at David's feet and she says, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Abigail took upon herself the guilt of her husband, Jesus, took upon himself the sin of all who believe. Jesus is the greater Abigail. Isaiah chapter 53 Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the greater Abigail. Abigail made things right with David. She gave him all that he needed for his men. She made things right with David. Jesus makes us right with God. Jesus takes our guilt, but not only that, he makes us right with God Almighty. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. He put him to grief. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us so that we can have the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5:21. Do you have faith in this Jesus? Are you trusting in him? Are you living for him today? Do you see him on the cross of Calvary bearing your sins, but not only that, giving you his righteousness, godliness, righteousness, holiness for you who are sinful, who you have a sinful nature and choose to sin, yet Jesus makes you holy and righteous for all eternity. Jesus is the greatest, greatest, and he's the greater Abigail. Abigail Saved David from destruction. Jesus saves us from eternal destruction. The fool says in his heart, There is no God, David writes in Psalm 53. We want to be prudent. Prudent means we think about the future, we give care and concern about it. There is an eternal destruction. That is a reality for many. Jesus saves us from eternal destruction. I don't know if this story is true or not. I read about a boy who was blind, but he was um, very active. He was able to do a lot of things, and he was out in the park and he was flying a kite. Blind boy flying a kite. And the man, a man comes up to him and says, uh, What are you doing? And he says, I'm flying a kite. Well, how do you know you're flying a kite? You can't see the kite. How do you know you're flying a kite? The boy said, I can feel the tug of the kite on the string. We were made for eternity, we were made to live forever. God gave us eternal souls. God created all there was and said it was good, and He placed us in the Garden of Eden to live forever in communion with Him. And he calls us into a relationship with him now through his son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness that he gives to not only have eternal life now, but have eternal life forever. And how do we know there's eternal life to come? I can't see eternal life. I can't see heaven, but I can feel the tug of eternity on my heart. When I stand next to a fresh grave and someone who's dead and who has died, and maybe too early or maybe even very old, it doesn't matter. There's something not right about it. When I see the terrorist stories in Paris and I think about ISIS killing people, I think that there's something not right about it. When I sin, when I rebel, when I experience the dissatisfaction of my sin, when I am prone to go down the roads of destruction, I know that it's not right. When I experience all the pain of life and the suffering that it brings, I know that there's something greater. There's eternity and there's God and there's righteousness and there's holiness and there's goodness. And Jesus gives it to all who come to him. Jesus is the greater Abigail. He saves us from our sin, He saves us for eternity, and He does it by His blood. We're made for so much more. Don't be a fool, don't be a hothead. Trust in Jesus for life, and live for him all your days. Let's pray. Thanks, God, uh, for your love for us and what you've done. And and thanks that uh, even in the pages of your word, we see it so clearly, the good news that you give us, that even in death and destruction, there's salvation. I pray for us today, not only that we would be saved, but we would live for you. We would be your men and women, In this dark place, you'd use us to save others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week.